With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Straw Hut Media. This is Lucas Grinley from Next City, a show about changemakers and their stories. Truth is, there are solutions to the problems oppressing people in cities. If you're listening, I hope it's because you want to spread good ideas from one city to the next city. Everyone talks about needing systemic change. Today, we have an example. We're going to hear about cities starting public banks. This idea has so much potential that this is how Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez began a congressional hearing last year on the federal version of this solution. Thank you so much, Chair Perlmutter. And, um, you know, I think one of the things that's important to acknowledge is that this is one of our first congressional hearings on public. And today is a historic day. I think it's a day we're celebrating. And I thank the chair uh, for his courage and his political courage and willing to convene this in front of the Financial Services Committee. Why is a congressional hearing an act of political courage? What is so historic? I have to warn you, today's episode is Next City Podcast Level 102. This is not a 101 class. To help us understand, we turn to Next City Senior Economics Correspondent Oscar Periabello, who has covered this idea for years. Because actually, it's more than an idea. It already exists in North Dakota. All right, so you and I get to talk about public banks a lot. This is one of the things we talk about a lot because apparently we're big nerds, but I think most people don't know what public banking is. So what is a public bank? It's not like there are ATMs, right? Describe it for people who've never heard of this before. Yes, so a public bank is a bank owned by a unit of government. Uh, It might be a state, it might be a city or a county. It could be also the federal government. It is owned by the government and it holds government deposits. The Bank of North Dakota, which has been around since 1919, it takes all of the state's government's deposits, like every 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 tax dollar and fee that you pay to the state of North Dakota. Um, it goes into the Bank of North Dakota and into the bank accounts that the state has and state agencies have also had bank accounts at the Bank of North Dakota. All of it there's about $5 billion in there, I think, right now. $5 billion in deposits from the state in the Bank of North Dakota. Why is it that public banking is extremely rare, but in North Dakota, we have a public bank? What is it they wanted? Yeah. So in 1919, uh, the farmers in North Dakota, the farmers banded together. I think there were probably some pitchforks involved. So the farmers in North Dakota were mad that the, the bankers in Minneapolis and Chicago and New York were charging them such high interest. They were like, screw it. We're going to create our own bank. To compare to today, public banking is also a response to shortcomings in the banking system now that people are saying, well, we'll start our own bank then. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's really, it's been really weird to talk with a bunch of folks in San Francisco and Oakland and New York and Chicago, um, places that could not be more different than North Dakota, big cities, so many people of color, Black-owned businesses, Latino business owners, immigrant business owners, um, and they're all looking at North Dakota and saying, hey, if they can do this in North Dakota, we can do this here in San Francisco or Los Angeles or New York um, because they feel the same way that the banks have let them down. They, 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 they either get charged too high interest or they don't get any loans at all from the banks, from the, from the private banks as they exist. And so they believe that, uh, just as the farmers in North Dakota believe, that, that creating a state-owned bank or a city-owned bank, in, in the cases of the cities that are doing this, can be a way to create access to capital where it doesn't currently exist or create more affordable access to capital where it currently costs too much. And where that is, is usually communities of color. Right, right. Because of historic redlining and segregation, um, there's plenty of maps and data that, that show that bank branches are more likely to close in communities of color. There are fewer bank branches in those neighborhoods relative to white and wealthier neighborhoods and cities. Um, yeah, these are places, you know, even though it's in, it might be in the middle of a giant metropolitan area, um, it's very much a banking desert the way lots of places in rural areas are banking deserts. In North Dakota, there are places that are you might consider geographically far from a bank, but banking deserts are rarer in North Dakota than in other big states. I'll give you an example. There are about 75 banks headquartered in North Dakota. There are only 50 towns in North Dakota with more than 2,000 people. Like tiny towns in North Dakota still have a local bank. And that's because of the Bank of North Dakota. Right. The way the Bank of North Dakota works is through local lenders. It really partners with local community banks, credit unions, to support them. So you've been explaining this to me for a long time, and let me see if I've got it at all, which is that a public bank can lower the risk for all those local banks that want to give a loan out to someone who is in a low-income, underserved neighborhood. They can essentially split the loan, share the risk. Right. So... Let's say you're a small business in West Oakland and you need a loan of $40,000. There's probably no bank you can find that can, can make you a loan for $40,000. It's number one, it's too small maybe for them. Or number two, it might seem too risky because of the neighborhood where your business is, because of you might lack collateral. You might not own your own home. You can't put it up for collateral. In North Dakota, they can say, okay, we're going to loan you $40,000, but we're actually going to get $20,000 from the bank in North Dakota to cover part of that loan so that um, we're sharing the risk with the state-owned bank. So the, the combination of a big bank and a little bank making a loan, it helps to share the risk and encourage those lenders to make more of those loans. So the bank in North Dakota is able to support a lot of these loans. And it does it, again, it does it always in partnership with a local lender which I think is probably one of the most misunderstood parts of the Bank of North Dakota is that it partners with local, local lenders on the vast majority of its lending. It doesn't compete with them. It actually works with them. 
That leads us to Philadelphia, where the city council has approved the first ever municipal public bank entity. The stated mission of this new bank is to make small business loans, especially to black entrepreneurs in neighborhoods that have historically lacked access to credit. After the break, we'll hear from city council member Derek Green, who championed this first ever city-owned public bank. Next City is not your average news organization. As a nonprofit, we leverage donations, grants, and sponsorships to provide a hub for solutions to the challenges and opportunities shaping cities worldwide. We hope to help you discover the future of our communities with thought-provoking articles, in-depth research, and engaging content like this podcast. We rely on the support of listeners like you. You are our dedicated community who continues providing not only support, but also the inspiration for all of this valuable content that drives positive change. If you believe in our mission and want to contribute to the future of cities, we invite you to make a donation today. Your support will help us expand our coverage, conduct more in-depth research, and foster meaningful discussions. Join us in reimagining an equitable future. Visit nextcity.org slash donate to make a contribution. Together, we can spread good ideas from one city to the next city. Welcome back to Next City. Before the break, we heard how North Dakota pioneered public banking. That is just the beginning. American Samoa created a public bank in 2016 when other banks wouldn't serve the territory. And that public bank actually accepts deposits from people like you and me. California approved a public banking act in 2019 for the first time allowing the creation of public banks to spread throughout the state. Now, activists in the East Bay are working on a regional public bank that would jointly be owned by Alameda County in the cities of Oakland, Berkeley, and Richmond. New Jersey's governor created a public bank implementation board in 2019, and legislation has popped up in New York, Oregon, Washington State, New Mexico, Massachusetts, and others. And this year, after six years of hearings and public meetings, Philadelphia City Council voted 15 to 1 to create a public banking entity. That is where we are headed next. Our senior economics correspondent, Oscar Periabello, spoke with the Philadelphia Bills champion, City Council member, Derek Green. Each public bank can have its own specialty, and the Philly Bank will have its own way of doing business. Can you talk a little about what, what, what is the end vision, the end result, ideally? What is the public bank supposed to be, ideally? What I would like to see is the City of Philadelphia having a uh, I'll call it a public banking ecosystem that, that includes a, a municipal bank uh, here in the city of Philadelphia, but also um, connected and affiliated with that, a Philadelphia Public Financial Authority, which is the legislation that we've already passed. Um, They're working cooperatively together um, to really help to address some of the systemic issues we've seen in the city of Philadelphia, uh, looking at ways in more creative ways, uh, providing financing both for the city of Philadelphia and other entities, but also providing um, banking products, uh, especially for those hard to lend to entities um, like some of our black and brown businesses, like cooperatives, like affordable housing developers uh, and other new industries um, that have come out of this dual track uh, initiative of the Philadelphia Public Banking, uh, Philadelphia Public Financial Authority and then also a future public bank. You know, what kinds of needs have come up for you in terms of how the bank will operate? 
know, there's a real deficit in access to credit for black and brown businesses. Um, we've seen studies from both the census, from organizations here in the city of Philadelphia that showed how many black and brown businesses were really impacted by the pandemic who were not able to reopen. Uh, and even before the pandemic, there's been historical um, issues, systemic issues that have really impacted the ability of um, those businesses to grow. Uh, and when you think about the issues we're seeing in the city of Philadelphia with public safety, um, and a lot of the public safety issues tied to people not being able to have um, jobs and resources, and the greatest creator of jobs are small businesses. And when you have some people who want to start a business not having the resources to open up their own business, that has caused some of the deficit of jobs in the city of Philadelphia. The fact that we have such a high poverty rate, um, the highest poverty rate for any large city in the nation. So when I think about the type of products that can come from the Philadelphia Public Financial Authority, it's those type of products like letters of credit, credit enhancements that are gonna help black and brown businesses to grow. Um, the fact that um, for the city of Philadelphia, uh, only 6% of the businesses with employees are owned by African-Americans. And from the Latin diaspora, only 4% of the businesses with employees uh, come from the Latin diaspora. To me, that's directly attrib attributable to the fact that of the high poverty we have in our city and the fact that we need an entity like the Philadelphia Public Financial Authority that can provide those type of credit enhancements to help those businesses be able to grow, get access to more lending products so that way they can help provide more jobs, help us with our public safety issues in our city. Yeah, and can you say a little more about the, the letters of credit and the other kinds of structures? Uh, how, how, mm -hmm. does, how does that sort of work? When you're providing a letter of credit or other type of credit enhancements, there's still a level of underwriting. But because this is a public entity, we don't have the same type of risk, uh, I mean, profit motive that a traditional bank would have. And so the risk issue is not the same level that you have in a traditional uh, for-profit or even a non-profit lender, because uh, those entities still have to bring in some income to offset um, their expenses. Um, we don't have that same level of um, motivation for this type of entity. And so there's a, a willingness to take a little bit more risk. And so we're trying to provide a product that's really missing from the ecosystem. I mean, there are entities that do provide letters of credit, but more often that's in the import export. That's not really what you see for a small business um, uh, product. And so we're trying to really provide a niche that's not really available now that will help these businesses that traditionally have not been able to get access to more lending to allow them to grow to help with their cash flow. And so that's why we've seen the numbers like the 6% and the 4% of businesses um, being owned by people of color, um, but only being entrepreneurships and not being entrepreneurs and sole proprietorships and not being larger businesses. And I think that's something that really has been a challenge um, from a historical systemic perspective because many of our black and brown entrepreneurs um, don't have a you know, friends and family where they can ask for, hey, can you provide X amount of dollars that I can use as collateral to then mm -hmm. help get more financing? That's mm -hmm. where this new entity will come in mm -hmm. to provide those type of opportunities. And for the city, 
it provides ability to grow businesses. Um, and when you're growing businesses, you're going to bring in more tax dollars to the city. And I think it's going to help us address some of the poverty issues that we have um, as a city. It's almost like the, the, the financial authority can kind of serve as a, like a co-signer on a loan. You know, if you have an uncle or, a, or your, your parents or your grandparents, maybe people would co-sign a loan for your house. This would be a authority would co-sign a loan for a small business. Yeah, that's actually a very good analogy. When you think of um, someone's a co-signer, you're basically saying, I'm putting my credit up to support this business. And when you think of the historical inequities, and this goes back to you know, my own career, having started at a small business lender from Meridian Bank, and I worked um, in North Philadelphia, and I saw the impact of redlining um, in the city of Philadelphia from a historical perspective. And when you don't see the ability for um, black and brown business owners or homeowners to build up the equity in their home. Well, that's the money and the resources many use to start a business is either home equity or tapping into the home equity of family, friends, and others. So if you don't have those resources, when you do start a business, often those businesses are undercapitalized. And if you have some type of issue like a um, major uh, event like a pandemic or a recession mm-hmm. uh, or some other type of national global event. So quickly, those businesses that get started that may have a great customer base or have a great product or service that people want to buy. But if you don't have those fundamental um, supports to make sure those businesses are capitalized at the way they should, they're not able to make it through some of those downturns. And what happens, a lot of those businesses don't last but so long. Or they're not able to grow because they can't get additional financing to um, bring in more employees or take advantage of opportunities. Let's talk about next steps in terms of funding for this entity and, and then eventually also pursuing a bank charter. Is it will be another question down the line, but what can you tell us so far about getting the startup funding for this initiative? So one of the other benefits of doing this initiative at this time, there are two other new entities within the city of Philadelphia. Uh, the Philadelphia Housing Development Corporation created uh, the Accelerator Fund, uh, which is a fund that's providing um, loans to emerging um, developers of color in the city of Philadelphia. Also, the Philadelphia Energy Authority, which is also a municipal authority, um, helped to create an affiliate called the Philadelphia Green Capital Corporation as a new entity. So although those two entities are different than the Philadelphia Public Financial Authority, there are similarities. So both with the uh, Accelerator Fund and the Green Capital Corporation, that they put together an initial budget of what they thought they would need for startup dollars, for operating dollars. Looking at their operations, we came up with a number of about $3 million that we'll be requesting through this current um, fiscal year 23 budget process that we're currently going through. In addition, looking at some of the initial products that the Accelerator Fund and the Green Capital Corporation are doing, we looked at you know what's the capitalization needs for uh, this entity. And so based on that research and looking at other jurisdictions that are looking to do public banks, um, we're looking at initial capitalization uh, amount of $75 million. So those are the requests that we're making to the administration through this budget process, um, both $3 million in operating dollars and $75 million in initial uh, capital dollars to get started that we can 
they'll do through um, some type of offering. And the belief is that based on those two numbers, uh, as well as having the support from the administration for um, the appointment process, either through the city website to receive requests of interest for people who wanna be on the corporate board, the policy board, or through the city council website, you know, those are the kind of the three steps we need to go through. Uh, we need to get the board members appointed. Uh, we need to get funding through the um, budget process for the initial operating dollars for the new entity, and then also the capitalization. Uh, so those are the, the three steps that we're working on now. Um, we are communicating that information to the administration, and hopefully we'll get the support we need. And I believe those who have been supportive of this initiative will also um, provide you know, some public uh, uh, support for those requests so that way we can move forward. And then hopefully um, we'll be able to have those things in place, hopefully by the end of the year. So who is opposed to creating public banks? After the break, we'll hear some of the typical arguments made against this new solution. This episode of Next City is based on a story we first reported on nextcity.org. If you want journalism that centers marginalized voices, if you want to ensure solutions to the problems that oppressed people in cities don't get overlooked, then subscribe to Next City's daily newsletters. Thousands of city planners, designers, placemakers, and urbanists like you read Next City every day. Together, we learn what's new and different in driving solutions in cities. Next City believes change is happening and makes it our job to find it. Signing up for our newsletters is the best way to stay informed on the issues that matter. To subscribe now, head to nextcity.org newsletter and enter your email address. That's nextcity.org newsletter. Welcome back to Next City. In today's show, public banks are being used to fill in gaps and better serve black small business entrepreneurs. But not everyone likes the idea. And there are actually lots of myths about public banking. Here again is our senior economics correspondent, Oscar Periabello. All right, let's see if we can go through a few of these popular misconceptions about what is and is not true about a public bank. Some have said that public banks are risky because they're not FDIC insured like other banks. What is the truth about that? So the Bank of North Dakota is not FDIC insured. When it was created in 1919, the FDIC did not exist. Right. The FDIC did not exist until 1933. So it was sort of grandfathered into the banking system. That said, the purpose of FDIC insurance is to give depositors the peace of mind that if their bank fails, the FDIC will be there to cover their deposits and get their deposits back for them through the FDIC's insurance fund. And the reason that a bank depositors would would all go at once to a bank to get their deposits is because it's failing and it's called a bank run, right? It used to happen a lot in this country and that's and the FDIC was created to prevent bank runs. Because the state of North Dakota is required by law to deposit its funds in the Bank of North Dakota, there cannot be a bank run on the Bank of North Dakota. Right. In California and Philadelphia, the cities that are pursuing public banks they are requiring their banks to, to obtain FDIC insurance. The reason for that is primarily for the oversight. 
because one way to keep politicians away from messing with the bank is by having federal regulators oversee that bank and be the ones who monitor on, a, on, a, on an ongoing basis. But the insurance would actually only cover a small amount. Yeah, FDIC insurance only covers up to $250,000 per depositor. And you know, even, even a small city is going to keep half a million dollars in the bank. And so a lot of that's going to be uninsured. Um, a state, you know, in Massachusetts, they're proposing the state deposit $1.4 billion into the state-owned banks. Uh, most of that's not going to be covered by deposit insurance anyway. Right. So there have to be other ways to protect the, the public deposits in that, in that instance. And there are established ways to do that. Let me ask you another one. So some say if the public bank is designed to serve people who don't qualify for everyday commercial bank loans, then there's going to be more loan defaults. Is that true or false? If we're really talking about these public banks doing what they what a lot of the folks say they want to do, yes, it's going to have more defaults, but not so much that it runs the bank out of business. The bank will still have to be financially self-sustainable. Otherwise, the FDIC wouldn't let it hold deposits. What the bank can do is because it doesn't have shareholders who want dividends, is it can set aside more money every quarter or every month. It can set aside more money and keep a bigger buffer there to support you know, a slightly higher default rate. That's the mindset you want to have established when, you, when you're establishing a bank that wants to reach more folks like this. Like You do want to do that. That said, do we know that there's going to be a higher default rate? I'm not sure because there are CDFIs across the country who are providing some loans to these folks who haven't been able to access conventional mainstream financing. And the, all of these CDFIs have lower default rates than many mainstream banks. They have below average default rates, um, even though they're lending to some of these borrowers who banks consider too risky. Right. So that's this brings up another thing that people say, which is that there are already all these CDFIs that you're mentioning. So why do you even need a public bank? It's not necessary. What's the response to that? Yeah. So there are these CDFIs that are, are doing these loans, but if you ask any of them, they'll all tell you that most of them are nonprofits. And they're all, just like other nonprofits, constantly short on cash. They have to raise the money first in order to make the loans. So these CDFIs are stretched to the limit. And a public bank, by doing loan participations or even by offering it to, to buy some of these loans, the same way Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac buy home loans from all kinds of home lenders, a public bank could buy certain kinds of loans that only CDFIs currently make. It could buy those loans. It could buy part of those loans. That's what a loan participation is. It's buying part of the loan. And by doing that, it could allow those CDFIs to do more, like a lot more. Because basically, if you think about if your CDFI has $9 million in loans and you sell participations on, let's say, half of that amount, you suddenly have $4 million more you can reloan back out into the communities that you're serving. You know, I just, I randomly walk into an immigrant-owned grocery store in Fargo 
And I asked them where they where do they get their startup capital, and they got it from a local bank. And then I went to the bank and I said, hey, these guys said they got a loan from you. And they said, yeah, yeah, they're a great client. And I said, yeah, did you work with the bank in North Dakota on that loan? And they said, yeah, we got we got half of the half of the bar with the mat we came from the bank in North Dakota. And that that's that's just typical in in a, in a place like North Dakota. And and these other places want that to be typical in, in their cities and states. So last one, sort of the typical argument against anything that is publicly run is that private banks couldn't possibly compete with a government-run bank. They might think you're opening some sort of Pandora's box in which private banks will go away. What do you say to that? The answer to that is everywhere there there are public banks, and I'm going outside the U.S. now to include like places like Germany and um, you know some like 30 to 40 percent of the world has government-owned banks in operation. And I mean, all these other places, private banks still exist. And if you just look at the Bank of North Dakota, there's 75 banks headquartered in North Dakota for a state of only about 800,000. Um, that's more banks headquartered per capita than any other state, right? We're talking one bank for every 10,000-ish people in North Dakota. In New York, I think it's one bank for every 140,000 people. Across the whole country, it's one bank for every 63,000 people. You know, there are more banks in North Dakota where there is a state-owned bank. There are more banks headquartered per capita in North Dakota than any other state. And if you go to the North Dakota Bankers Association, you can ask them about it. They love this thing. Their membership can't envision operating the way they operate in North Dakota without the state-owned bank as a lending partner to them. Now, where a lot of folks are worried is on the deposit side. Yes, there are local banks and some credit unions, depending on the state, that do hold local deposits. There are about $500 billion in state and local governments that are deposited in banks. Most of it is in big banks, some of it is in small banks. Um, and yes, to some extent, a state-owned or locally-owned bank would be competing for those deposits. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Next City, a show about changemakers and their stories. Together, we can spread good ideas from one city to the next city. Thank you for listening this week. Thank you to Oscar Periobello, our senior economics correspondent, who knows more about public banks than I could possibly fit into one episode of this podcast. If you'd like to learn even more, download Next City's Public Banks ebook by visiting nextcity.org ebooks. Thank you to our guest, Philadelphia City Council member Derek Green. If you would like to hear more from that interview, visit our webinar library at nextcity.org webinars. Our audio producer is Silvana Alcala. Our executive producers are Tyler Nielsen and Ryan Tillotson. By the way, Next City is a news organization with a nonprofit model. If you like what we're doing here, please consider pitching in to support our work. Visit nextcity.org membership to make a donation. We'd love to hear any feedback from our listeners. Please feel free to email us at info at nextcity.org. And if you haven't already, subscribe to the show on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to your podcasts. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. 
No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.